So if you live here in the Northern Hemisphere, this Thursday, December 21st, has the dubious distinction of being the darkest night of the year. Hmm? The winter solstice. It'll have the fewest hours of sunlight and the most hours of darkness of the whole year. Uh, so I did a little research so you'll know what to expect this Thursday, winter solstice in the northern hemisphere, December 21st. If you live here in North Alabama, the sun will rise about 6.49 a.m., a little later, right? 6.49 a.m. and will set at 4.42 p.m. for a grand total of nine hours and, 50, excuse, nine hours and 53 minutes of daylight. Not very much, sorry. If, however, you live in Fairbanks, Alaska, the sun will rise at 10.50 a.m. Can you imagine this? 10.50 a.m. and will set at 2.41 p.m. So in Fairbanks on Thursday, you're only going to get three hours and 42 minutes of sunlight. But if you live all the way up in Barrow, Alaska, which I'm told is in the Arctic Circle, then... The sun will rise on January 23rd. I'm so sorry. I, uh, it actually set on November 18th, and you're in the middle of 65 straight days of darkness. Um, you get a really cool summer. Uh, but, uh, like, I don't know how to help you, right? So the idea here that this Thursday is going to be darkness, for some of you, you say, well, okay, the, the darkest day of the year. For some of you, that's okay, because that just means we're getting closer to Christmas. And for you, that just means we're closer to all that shines bright around the holidays. You're getting closer to family and friends gathered around the Christmas tree. That's not so bad. For others, however, the darkness of the darkest day of the year, the darkness outside is just a metaphor for what's going on this holiday season for you. The darkness can be a dreadful reminder of the pain of loss. Perhaps you went through a grief this year. You lost some, a loved one. And it, th those losses are always harsh, but they can be especially harsh and you feel especially lonely around the holiday times. Today's text has a lot to say about that darkness. I've been in a series I'm calling The Family Tree of Jesus. And each week we're looking at someone in the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter one. Uh, we looked at Judah. We looked last week at Rahab, right? The rehab of Rahab. And uh, today I'm actually gonna start a two-parter. We're gonna look at two characters. And, we're, and I realize that there, there's enough here to spread out over two weeks. So we'll look uh, this week and next week at characters we find in uh, verse 5. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Here's where we meet these characters. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, right? So in Matthew 1, you're in the genealogy. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and so forth. And Salmon had Boaz by Rahab. We looked at that last week. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, who we know as king. So today we're going to look at Ruth. And then next Sunday, Christmas Eve, the last in the series, The Family Tree of Jesus, uh, we'll look at Boaz. So there you go, The Family Tree of Jesus. I did not get very far. Uh, <laughs> we made it to verse 5. But this week we'll look at Ruth, and next week, Boaz. Got it? So here we go, Ruth. Now, so turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book that's named after our character today, Ruth. You'll find it in the Old Testament, Joshua Judges Ruth. Turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. 
While you're finding Ruth in your copy of God's Word, I'll go ahead and give you the outline. We're going to look, as I said, it's about darkness, and I'll give you kind of three points here. The first is the darkness outside, right? And there is a lot of darkness we'll see in Ruth chapter 1, the darkness outside. I thought about calling my first point, baby, it's dark outside, but I showed great restraint. Second is the darkness inside, and then we'll end with a thrill of hope because if it's a Christmas sermon that means it's Christmas time and the gospel message of Christmas is no matter how dark the circumstances no matter how bleak the dead of midwinter how many of you know because of God there's always a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices so darkness outside darkness inside a thrill of hope I'll try to make applications for each one here we go Ruth chapter one we'll start with darkness outside The story of Ruth begins, there's no other way to say it, with so much darkness. Right off the bat, there's darkness. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Right there, spiritual darkness in the land. Do you remember your context? Uh, God gets the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. And what's his goal for them? To go into the what? into the promised land. And there in the promised land, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to be a light to the nations. Israel was supposed to demonstrate God's plan. This is what it looks like when people are in covenant with God. They're working with the grain of the reality of the universe, not against it. There's thriving and there's, there's hope and there's healing for the nations. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Instead, what do we find in the book of Joshua and Judges? Is they going to the promised land? Does that happen? No. In fact, the opposite happens. Instead of them being a light to the nations, all these pagan nations, instead of them being a light, they turn out, Israel takes on the darkness of the surrounding nations. One commentator calls the book of Judges the downward spiral of the canonization of Israel. Israel, which was supposed to be the set-apart chosen people by God, instead becomes canonized. They begin to look no different than the world around them, worshiping these other gods and idols. And and over and over in Judges, it says there was no king in Israel. See, there was no king in Israel. We didn't have a king yet. And it says, and so everybody decided they'd be their own king. The line over and over in the book of Judges is, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king in Israel. No king in Israel. Can you imagine? How does that sound from God's perspective? Yeah, there's no king in Israel, to which Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is like, really? Last I checked, I I was your king. You were my people. The audacity to say no. So this was a spiritually dark time, and it goes from bad to worse. It gets even darker. It keeps getting darker. In, uh, in the land, so in the days when the judges ruled, the verse goes on, there was a famine in the land. And we meet a certain man, a man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of, oh, no, y'all, in the country of Moab. Yeah, he and his wife and his two sons. Moab, anywhere but there. Why would they go to Moab? So you're telling me he's going to leave the ancestral land of promise? He was of the tribe of Judah, right? Judah was kind of the, think of it as maybe the, you might say the state, right? This would be in the, in the allotment of the land. It was given to Judah. And within that, there's a region, Ephrathah. And within that, the city of Bethlehem. And you got this Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem citizen from Judah. And he's going to leave the promised land and go all the way to Moab? The ancient enemies of Israel? Moab were technically related to the Israelites, but they were enemies. They had opposed Israel's advance into Canaan. And Moabites were known not to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the true and living God. Instead, they were polytheistic pagans. And not only did they worship Chemosh, their pagan god, but that god demanded 
human sacrifices. So you got these, these idol worshipers that are offering their children up in, to be burned up to, to appease this God. These are the Moabites. What would possibly make a man leave Bethlehem and go there? The answer is the famine. From dark to even darker. I mean, look, how many times can this poor fellow from Bethlehem hear his little children, right? It says he's got these two sons. You know, those of you who have, you're raising boys, you know how much they eat, right? And you, you could go through a lot, but how many times could you hear your little boy say, Daddy, I'm dreadfully hungry today. Do you think there'll be grain today in any of the stores, Dad? Do you think we'll be able to eat today? I'm just so hungry. How many times could you hear that before you set your sights on Moab? I know it's a pagan land. I know we're not supposed to be there. I know it feels like we're going backward on the promise of God. But he might say, what else can I do? The author gives us the names of these characters, and the names are significant and and packed with irony. Look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Notice a couple things. The man's name was Elimelech. Oh, the irony. The whole point in the time of Judges, which Ruth puts us, it's almost like Judges zooms out and tells us how dark it is in Israel. Ruth is a story of, it zooms in on one ordinary family. And of all the things, there was no king in the land. There was no king in Judah. There was no king in Israel. That's what the theme of Judges, there's no king. You know what this guy's name, Elimelech, you know what it means? El, God, Melech, my king. His name literally means God is my king. So Mr. God is my king, you see the irony. Of all people who are supposed to have faith in God's promise, he's going to get us through, he's going to provide. He gave us manna in the wilderness when our forefathers walked through the desert. So this this Mr. God is my king, that's the one who's hightailing it over to Moab in a complete lack of faith in God, my king. Now Naomi has irony. Naomi's name means pleasant. Here we meet pleasant, and Naomi's life is anything but pleasant, and it's about to get worse. Malon and Killian are names that have long been translated to mean sickly. Malon and Killian, pining or wasting, as in wasting away. There's some foreshadowing there about what's going to happen to them. And perhaps the cruelest irony of all, where did they come from? What made them leave? Where's there no bread? Where's there no, there's no food? They have to leave the land of promise and go to Moab. And what is the land they leave? What is literally, it says the city they leave? Bethlehem. In Hebrew, house of bread. They literally have to leave the house of bread because there's no bread in the house of bread and find that they're going to try to be better off in this pagan land than in Bethlehem. Notice, too, the progression of the language. We get further and further entrenched in pagan Moab. At first it says, if you go back to verse 1, it says that they sojourned there. That means they were only going to be there for a hot minute. They were going to go there and, and, and figure out how to kind of re, uh, restart their life after this famine. And, but, but eventually they're going to get right back. But now you'll notice they no longer sojourned. Now look at that word, remained. And we'll see we're not done progressing in the entrenchment in this pagan land. So, there's two schools. I, look, I don't want to be too hard on Elimelech. I, I, I leave it to you. There's two schools of thought on this. You decide where you land. Some people would say Elimelech failed to trust God. He should have never left the house of bread, Bethlehem, and now he's found himself in Moab. That is a lack of faith, and he sinned, and he failed to have faith. Others would say, yeah, but what choice did he have? 
I mean, if we interviewed Elimelech, right, this is why these stories, they, they're about real people. They, they still capture our hearts and our imaginations because we, we imagine ourselves, what would you do? I imagine if we interviewed Elimelech, he would say, yeah, but what choice did I have? I mean, how are you going to get self-righteous on me saying, well, you know, you, you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't have gone even though there was a famine. He's like, look, I get it. I was supposed to live in the land of Bethlehem, but I'm not going to live in the land of Bethlehem if I die from famine and my kids all die. I'm not really living in the land there either. So what choice did I have? It's tough. It's dark. And the darkness of life's circumstances get even darker. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Here she is in this foreign land. No social safety net, died. She still has hope. The Bible says she was left with her two sons. Remember that phrase, she was left with her two sons. And now there's kind of a permanence in verse four. Now, remember they said they, they sojourned, then they remained. Look at verse four. These, uh, the two sons, took Moabite wives. The name, of the, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Okay, so we went from sojourn to remain to now they uh, went and got wives and now it says they lived there. Okay, now they're there. They're Moabite. To use New Testament language, these two boys are um, unequally yoked. Uh, They are not marrying uh, God-fearing women. They're marrying uh, Moabite, uh, presumably pagan worshipers uh, of of, of an idol. And so uh, we're not really prepared for verse five where, uh, you know, okay, so we're in Moab. We're a place we're never supposed to be. These guys have married these Moabite wives, but verse five, this crushing blow, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman, remember the phrase, she was left with her two sons? Now, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In any culture, in any time period, this is absolutely devastating. Some of you in this room have gone through the pain the loss of a family member. But in the ancient Near East, in a patriarchal society, this means not only does she have the pain that any of us would feel at the death of a loved one, but now think about her, her social position. She's now the poorest of the poor, homeless and helpless. Can, can, can we even begin to imagine what's going on in Naomi's mind? What's going on in, in Miss Pleasant, of all things, Miss Pleasant's mind? I imagine she's racked with guilt. She thinks, how did we get here? What led to this? You know, many times when people go through grief, they, they, they go through the grief, which is from God and good, but it comes with an evil twin that is not from God, and that's guilt. How many of you have experienced that? You, you, you think, even in, even in simple terms, how many of us, oh, I, if I had only visited Aunt, Aunt Mabel one last time in the nursing home. Oh, I, I, I should have done this. Oh, there was something I could have done. I imagine Naomi, if, if it was her idea to leave Bethlehem and go look for food, I imagine she Every night, tossing and turning. Why did Elimelech listen to me? We should have never left Bethlehem. Or if it may, perhaps it was the other way around. Perhaps she pleaded with Elimelech not to leave the land of promise and go to Moab, but he insisted, and she's filled with guilt. Why didn't I plant my feet there more firmly? Why, why didn't I, oh, why did, he li- why did I listen to him? Why did I do this? Incredible moment. And that's how the book of Ruth begins. It's a cliffhanger, right? I mean, you're left reading this, and you're going, well, I, I, I wonder what, what's going to happen to this woman. What's going to happen to these daughters-in-law, right? When you read Ruth, you're like, I think I'll stay awake and read another chapter. You know? This isn't like a genealogy. That was a joke about Matthew. Okay. Somebody said this week, if the whole Bible were genealogies, we'd all read our Bible in 10 minutes. Because flip, 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 flip. It wasn't, I didn't say it was a funny joke. I just said it was a funny joke. What's the application? I, look, I, 
I don't, I, don't re- I don't really know any other way to say this. My point in beginning, the darkness outside, is all about the darkness of circumstances that here you have these God-fearing Israelites, Elimelech and Naomi and the two boys, and now they've got Orpah and Ruth roped into this family. And, and, and this is the only way, I guess, when I talk about the darkness outside, here's how to apply it. And this is, I, I hope this is a word of hope for anybody going through dark times, and that's this. God's people are not exempt from dark times. Just not. You could be the most faithful Christian, the most loving, uh, uh, God-fearing, and, and, and you may, like, you're not exempt from that doctor giving that diagnosis, you know? You're not exempt from that hard times. You're not exempt from that pain. I, I'm not either. You know, uh, one of my favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah 43, and I always, <laughs> I guess I kind of, deep down, I wish it said something maybe a little different, because what it says is, when you come to the raging waters, when you pass through the floodwaters, when you walk through that fire, I guess in my mind, I, w- I would prefer it would say, because you're God's people, when you come to the water, or you come to the fire, I know a way you can tiptoe around it, and you never have to experience suffering. Or when you come to the water, I will let you just walk right across it and never even feel the pain and the fear and the anxiety of a flood. But it doesn't say that. It says when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the flames. The promise is not that you'll be able to avoid it. The promise is God's word says, Isaiah 43, what? When you pass through those raging waters, I will be with you. God's people are not exempt from dark times. Well, for those who've gone through dark circumstances, they will tell you that the deepest pain often is not what's going on out there. They feel like maybe they could handle that. But what do you do when they ask you, hey, what do I do about the darkness inside of me? That's why I'm calling this second point the darkness inside. Ruth's story begins with all sorts of darkness outside. Naomi's story, all sorts of darkness outside. But what's going on inside Naomi? What about the darkness inside? She knows she must make the best of things. So verse six, I mean, verse six alone starts with a miracle. For those who have gone through this level of grief and this level of pain, the fact that the Bible says, then she arose. I mean, let's be honest. There are times when you go through so much darkness that getting out of bed, you should get a trophy. You should get a medal. Just getting out of bed and starting your day. So the fact that I I don't know how much time elapsed between verse five and verse six, but she arose. She got up. It says, with her daughters-in-law, to do what? To return from the country of Moab. Why? For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Oh, listen, it's the Lord who gives the food. Isn't it something in 2023 we are so far uh, removed from where our food comes from? This is just a brief aside, but I did hear uh, one uh, little girl a couple years ago, this is so funny, uh, she said, well, if there are no farms, that's no problem, I'll just get my food from Publix. I was like, I'm not really sure about causality there, right? Um, But as we get further and further away uh, from where food comes from, uh, listen, don't ever forget, uh, wherever you got your food, ultimately, it's the Lord that puts the food on your table. It's God. And Naomi Uh, may not be very complex in her food production process, but her theology is right. Who who did it? The Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and 
they, oh, oh, sorry, she was with her two daughters-in-law. In other words, they're coming with. So they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. She gets word there's food back in the homeland, and uh, she knows there's not much of a life waiting there for her. But she does remember, if you go back to the Torah in Leviticus, uh, uh, somewhere around Leviticus 19, it is clear that in God's law, he provides, you can eke out an existence. If you are so poor, you don't have any land, presumably they've sold everything to move to Moab in desperation. When they come back, you'll, you'll be the poorest of the poor, but God instructed the harvesters, they couldn't harvest the grain all the way right up into every last corner. They had to leave a little corner, leave a little of the edges. You know why? so that the poorest of the poor had a means of, of survival. They could come. They had to work, but it gave dignity to their work. They could come, and they could glean from what was left over and eke out an existence. She knows she'll be able to do that. She also knows it is not fair to ask Orpah and Ruth to do it. These girls are young. They've got their whole life ahead of them. They can hit the reset button. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But they can start over and have a hope at prosperity. If you come with me, there won't be any hope. And she knows that. So she's she's setting them free. She releases them in this beautiful speech in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go. Return each of you to her mother's house. And now she blesses him. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. In other words, you've been a good daughters-in-law. You've been good to my boys. You've been good to my husband. But so, so, so because of all that kindness and that hesed, that faithful love, may the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, she's saying, as much as it would pain me, listen, girls, there ain't no life for you back in Bethlehem. I'm going to eke out a a poverty-stricken existence for the rest of my bitter days. That's no life for you. You are free. Go, remarry. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They just have a crying session, these three women. So moving. But she's blessing them, and she's asking the God of Israel to bless these Moabite women. Let them find new husbands and new families. And they said, and look at verse 10, and they said, probably knowing that she was going to say that, no, we will return with you to your people. And I think humans understand. Have you ever been in a transaction when somebody wants to bless you? You say, no, 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 no. No, And they say, no, I insist. And you say, no, I insist. And this goes on until somebody, like, insists more, right, you know. Uh, So there's that back and forth. And Naomi, is no, Naomi knows that's what they're going to say. And Naomi knows they're so kind to say it. But it's not what's best. And Naomi says, you're not thinking straight. I so appreciate your heart. But girls, think this through. There's no life for you. Let's, so she says, let's play this out. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. She's saying, come on, listen, I I can't give you any more husbands. I'm too old for that. And besides, if I could, if I were pregnant right now with twin boys that could grow up to be your husbands, are you going to wait 18, 20 years till they're, no, of course not. There's no life for you here. Would you therefore refrain from me? No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter to me, notice this, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. A second crying session. Because what else is there to say? Focus in on that key verse, though. This is the darkness inside. I'm going somewhere with this. Think about this. Notice her exact words. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Now, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but I want you to see. She picks up on the same language. What's going on in the darkness inside of Naomi? What's she thinking saying this? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Uh, uh, so, spoiler alert, if you skip ahead to verse 19, you, you, you notice she says the same thing. She has the same idea. Once she gets back to Judah and everybody in the town is like, is that, can this, can this be Naomi? You know, it's a small town and everybody sees Naomi coming back. Who? Who's she with? But I, I heard Naomi is back in town. What? I thought she went to Moab. No, she's back. I saw it on Facebook. She's back. Face scroll. I saw it on face scroll. She's back. Well, what happened to her husband? You didn't hear? Mr. God is my king? He's dead. You're kidding. What about the two boys? Sickly and... Wasting away. Well, I guess I answered my own question. Probably didn't end well. No, 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 no. They got sick and wasted away. Well, what, 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 what? But she looked so happy when she left. Is it totally? Can this be Naomi? What's her response? Look at verse nineteen. And when, just so you don't think I'm making this up, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. That's how small towns work. They get stirred up. And the woman and the and the women said, "Is this Naomi?" And she said to them. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. Can you imagine? Hey, if you, uh, if you see me around town, it is me. It's the one you used to know as Naomi, but I'm a very different person when I came back than when I left. So here's the deal. If you see me out and about and I'll be bent over gleaning from the fields in my poverty and having lost my husband and lost my two boys, if you cry out to me, hey, Pleasant, hey, Pleasant, is that you, Pleasant? You'll forgive me if it's a little too much for me to even answer to that. But if you say, hey, Bitter, I'll know you're talking to me. Why? She says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? The Lord dealt bitterly. The Lord brought me back empty. The Lord testified against me. The Lord brought calamity upon me. And that is why I'm calling it the darkness inside. Now, I want to make three observations about the darkness inside. This is my Christmas gift to note takers. I give you a three-point outline, and they have subpoints. The darkness inside. Uh, this may be controversial, but uh, somebody in here needs to hear all this. And this is what I have to say about Naomi's darkness inside. And, 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 and the first is this. <sighs> what do you do with all this bitterness? Here's the first thing. Uh, Naomi, she, she is not wrong for feeling her feelings. Somebody needs to hear that. Grief is not a sin. What I love about Naomi is she doesn't just put on a happy face and say, I've had all this tragedy in my life, but that's okay. I know that God is good and I can trust him and it's, it'd be a sin for me to feel bad. No. She doesn't put on a mask. She's not fake. She's not phony. She feels grief and she's allowed to feel her feelings. Listen, she is not wrong for feeling her feelings. If you're a Christian right now and you're walking through dark circumstances and you feel uh, angry and you feel this, this sense of bitterness and you don't know where that comes from, you're, you're allowed to feel your feelings. In fact, it draws us in. You know, I, I think, uh, d d what does this do to you as a reader when you see somebody like Naomi who's like, call me bitter, right? Does it make you dislike Naomi? Are you like me? It draws you in. I like her more. I like her. 
I like this person that's not being fake and not putting on a mask and not saying everything's okay when things are clearly not okay. She's allowed to feel her feelings. She's not wrong. And if you're in pain today, you don't have to hide it from yourself. You don't have to hide it from God. You know, when our kids were little, we used to say, hey, you're allowed to feel your feelings. You're allowed to feel your feelings. I have no idea where that came from. I have no idea where we got that quote. I I truly don't, but we said it all the time because sometimes there'd be a crying session and we would want to swoop in as parents and fix it when what we realized is, you know what? You're allowed to feel your feelings. Around here, you're allowed to feel your feelings. And Naomi's allowed to feel her feelings. So she's not wrong for feeling her feelings. So far, that may not be too controversial. What about this one? She is not wrong in her theology for saying God is in control. Her theology is dead simple. When, when, just like when the farms back in Bethlehem had food, what did she say? It's very simple cause and effect in her theology. God did it. And when she loses her husband and she loses her kids and all that stuff, whose name is at the end of all that? The Lord dealt. The Lord did bitterly. And I'm here to tell you, she is not wrong for saying God is in control. I know there's a lot of people that would have a real problem with that. And believe me, I understand why. They would want to say, and I understand why, I feel the same tension. They would want to say, no, 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 no. You can't say God's behind this. You've got to say things like, well, it's, it's a result from living in a fallen world. And, and I, I'll grant you, there's a lot here I'll never understand in the providence of God, but God is ultimately sovereign and in control. And that is why, that is why Naomi feels such pain. Don't you see? That's precisely why Christians feel such pain pain when they go through suffering. Ponder the logic with me. If you're an atheist, what right do you have to get mad at suffering? Who are you mad at? If you're a cosmic accident that just big bang happens, it's just luck or bad luck or fate or whatever. It's Christians who believe in a personal God, who believe that that, that God is powerful. In fact, the more you believe in the power of God, the more you're looking up at God going, why? Why did this happen? I believe you're powerful. I believe you could have stopped it. That's why in the Bible you have the book of Psalms crying out all through the Psalms. God, don't you see what's happening? God, we're suffering. God, I'm going through all this pain. Why, God? In fact, the more you believe in the power of God, the more likely you are to feel like Naomi when you go through pain and suffering. So for a God-fearer like Naomi, she's got two options. Either God... Okay, so either God did not have the power to stop this and all this tragedy, God is just as shocked and surprised as Naomi. He was really caught off guard by that. No, Naomi would have never believed that about the God of Israel. You shouldn't either. So what that leaves is one other option. God could have stopped all this and for whatever reason, he chose not to. Her theology in saying God is in control is not wrong. In fact, the more you believe in the power of God, the more it is possible you're gonna feel anger when you go through suffering. So what's the solution? To stop believing in the power of God? No, 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 no. And this is the third thing. She's not wrong for feeling her feelings. She's not wrong for saying God is in control. Watch carefully. And I, I apologize for how like, lo- lengthy this is worded, but I had to be precise. I had to get every word right. So here it is. She's not wrong for feeling her feelings. She's not wrong for saying God's in control. She's right, God is in control. But she is wrong for interpreting her hard circumstances as God's enmity toward her. Sorry for how convoluted that sentence is. But it's important you understand this point. We're not just splitting hairs here. This will be a piece of driftwood for when you go through real pain, you'll be able to cling to this. Just because the circumstances are dark, she is dead wrong about God's motives toward her. 
She's wrong. Hard circumstances is God's enmity towards her. In other words, she says the Lord is, his hand is against me. He's no longer for me. He's dealing bitter. Oh, Naomi, you're wrong about that. You're right that you're feeling grief, and you're not wrong to say God's in control, but you are wrong about God's motives. Now, I'm not saying she's bad. I'm saying she's wrong. I'm not saying shame on her. How would any of us react in that kind of pain? I'm tender toward that. I have mercy and compassion toward that, but she is wrong in saying God doesn't have a plan. She is wrong in saying God is against her. She is wrong in saying that God is not for her. And you say, well, okay, Tom, I I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah, when we get to heaven, when we get to glory, and we all find out God was working, I know, what is it, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. I know in the sweet by and by, we will see how God has worked all this evil ultimately for his good, and I'll grant you that's right, but Naomi is not gonna be proven wrong in the sweet by and by. She's gonna be proven wrong like in less than one chapter. She's going to see how God is using all of this ultimately for his glory and for her good, even while she's still alive, even less than a chapter away. So when you go through dark times, you're allowed to feel your feelings. And yes, God is in control. Don't lose faith. But don't think for one minute that these circumstances mean you have the same wisdom as God and that you can see everything as the Almighty sees it. He sees more than we do. And he knows what he's doing. And that's the thrill of hope. Now let's close this out. Let's, let's end with this thrill of hope. Go back to verse 14. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. There's been the two weepings, and now it's, it's been enough back and forth. Now it's decision time. And we expect both of these girls to say, okay, thank you very much. We'll go back. We'll start our new lives. And Orpah does. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth, Ruth didn't. Ruth clung to her. Now this is unexpected. Ruth, this Moabite, this outsider, chooses her poverty-stricken mother-in-law over her future prospects of what could be great prosperity. What's going on? That's exactly what Naomi wants to know. That's why Naomi asks in verse 15, and she said to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. In other words, what are you doing, girl? Go back. But Ruth reveals what is in her heart in one of the most sparkling speeches in all of the Bible. But Ruth said, do you know this one? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And here it is. And your God my God, the conversion of Ruth. Something has happened. A change has happened inside of Ruth. We have theological terms for that now. The Holy Spirit quickened her to new life and saving faith. I don't know that they would have had all that theology, but something's happened in Ruth where she's thought long and hard about the Moabite God and their ability to save. And and get this, she is saying she would rather, she would rather trust in, and yes, Moab has grain, and yes, Moab has the potential for future husbands and prosperity and children and all that, and yes, it looks like there's nothing here, and there is nothing here, but your God. I'm safer with nothing and your God than with everything and not your God. Orpah walked right out of the pages of salvation history and this Moabite pagan Ruth walked right in. How? Same as Rahab, faith. 
with nothing to go on except your God. It's not much. And it doesn't make Naomi all better again, but it's a glimmer of hope. She's not alone. Look at verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And I want to apply this to our lives in closing. I want us to see that Ruth is both a model and a pointer. This is what I mean by a thrill of hope. The thrill of hope is that Ruth serves for us a dual function. When we talk about this in a, in a sermon in 2023, Ruth is a model for us, but she's also a pointer. So let me, let me show you what I mean with that. I'll do, I'll do this very quickly. Ruth is a model. She is an example for believers today. First, she is a model of loyalty, isn't she? Can, can you imagine what this did for Naomi to feel like you're, you're, you're about to make this journey? Even if you survive the journey, what hope do you have? But would it not be a thrill of hope to hear your daughter-in-law, who had no reason to go with you, say to you, nope, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people, my people, your God, my God. It would have been a thrill of hope to Naomi. You don't know what your loyalty means to your friends. Don't underestimate your loyalty to those you love. Can I make an application here? Might it be that you need to think about the key commitments in your life, and sometime this Christmas season, you need to reaffirm your loyalty to these people you love. I think it'll do a lot for them. I think it'll encourage them. Maybe this week, maybe this afternoon, those of you that are married, you need to sit down with your spouse and you say, hey, just so you know, I ain't going anywhere. And don't look at them and say, babe, we're not going anywhere. No, no, that's, that's not what I mean. Say, I'm not going anywhere. Maybe keep showing up for those friends and let them know how much they mean to you. Uh, keep reaching out. Uh, you know, the, loyalty is a lost art in our day. When commitment means I am absolutely committed to you. Where you go, I will go, unless a better offer comes along. Ruth says, no, there's no better offer. Where you go, I'll go. That's why this, uh, this Ruth speech, if it reminds you of wedding vows, it's often used at weddings. Why? Because that's what vows are. Vows are not celebrations of the love you have now. Vows are appointments to be faithful in the future. And Ruth says, I don't know what's coming, but here's what I do know. Whatever we face, you won't face it alone. I'll be with you. A model of loyalty. Also, she is a model of inclusion. What do I mean by this? Ruth is an outsider. Ruth is the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Jew. <laughs> Ruth shows us that God saves sinners, and he doesn't just save like a very narrow type of sinner that grew up in church as a good little boy or a good little girl and, and grew up in a certain part of the globe. No, no, no. God saves sinners from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. From Bethlehem to Moab. From Pakistan to Nashville, every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. There is a wideness. Do you know that hymn? There's a wideness in God's mercy. It's number 25 in the Baptist hymnal. I got receipts on this hymn. There's a wideness in God's mercy, wider than the sea. There's a kindness in his justice that is more than liberty. Oh, there's a wideness in God's mercy. I know some people feel like, I don't know if I can go to church. I don't know if I'd fit in. I don't know the way I look or the way I dress. Oh, stop. What? It doesn't matter what race. It doesn't matter what background. It doesn't matter if you've never been to church before. You can understand these words that I'm saying from this story, that there is a wideness in God's mercy. You're not just welcome here. You're so welcome here. Why? Because God didn't just love the world. He's so love the world. There's a wideness, and it's big enough to include even Moabite pagans like Ruth and write them right into the story of God. 
Have you been written into the story of God? There's a wideness to his mercy. Ruth is a model of loyalty. She's a model of inclusion. And last one, she's a model of commitment. She's an example for us. Like we should look at Ruth and be like, hey, I need to be like that. Look at that speech to Naomi. Your people, my people, your God, my God, where you go, I'll go. Does that not remind you of anything in the New Testament? Doesn't that remind you of when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if anyone would come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Doesn't that sound like that? Where you go, I'll go. As disciples of Jesus, that's what we're saying. Jesus, where you lead, I will follow. And your people will be my people. I love that. Your people. Who's Jesus' people? The church. Fine. If you love the local church, I'll love the local church. Because the Jesus' people are my people. Well, what about when they do wrong? What about when they, yep, I know. And I love them. And they love me. And the world is going to know that we're Jesus people, how? By our love, one for another. And if we were all easy to love, that wouldn't be very impressive. But I, you did too. When you became a Jesus follower, you know what you said? Your people, my people. And watch this, your God, the God that our King Jesus said, my, our Father who art in heaven, here, your God, my God. I've been written into this story. And, 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 and Ruth doesn't know it yet, but she's going to leave houses and land and family and go to this place where there's nothing, and she's going to be rewarded, which is, which is exactly what Jesus told Peter in Mark chapter 10, verse 27, 29. Jesus, Peter was saying, what about us? We've left everything. In Mark 10, 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one like you, Ruth, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands like Ruth, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. That totally happens to Ruth. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. That totally happens to Ruth. And with persecutions and in, in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. Yeah, Ruth was last on the society's ladder. But the last shall be first. She's a model of loyalty, a model of inclusion, and a model of commitment. That's what I wanted to tell you is that Ruth is our example. And she's a model. The musicians are going to come. and uh, Brennan and uh, lead us in a time of response. I got one verse left, so don't put your Bible away. Uh, because I said she is a model, but Ruth is not just a model. She's also a signpost. She's, she's a pointer. What do I mean? She's signaling someone else. Ruth was full of loyalty and commitment, but let me ask you. Uh, I won't ask you if you have a Ruth in your life. I'll ask it this way. Who has shown ultimate loyalty and commitment to you? Hmm? Who has said to you, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you? Isn't Jesus the true and better Ruth to whom Ruth points? I mean, isn't Jesus the one, you say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have a Ruth in your life, but if you know the Lord Jesus, isn't he the one? Because here's, here's a, a big difference. When Ruth makes this pledge to Naomi, notice the pledge ends. Do you know where it ends? She says, your people, my people, your God, my God, where you go, I go, where you lodge, I lodge, and may God, you know, do all this and more to me unless I fulfill my law, until what? Until something breaks this vow. She says, until death. So for Ruth, the vow ends at death. 
Think of that for a second. It makes sense. When you come to death, even your closest friend and family member must turn back. But there is one. Hmm? There is one friend who sticketh closer than a brother. One friend who even in death will not have to turn back, but who can go with you all the way through the valley of the shadow of death and get you safely home because the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus, died on that cross and rose again on the third day. He now has power over sin and the grave and he can give an even better loyalty and even deeper hesed, loving kindness than even Ruth could give. Ruth could just foreshadow it, but he could be Emmanuel, God with us always to the very end of the age. For anyone today who feels the darkness outside, I hope this message has been an encouragement to you especially for those who would say, I not only feel darkness outside, if there's anybody in here walking through that darkness, that, that, that depression, that despair, that downward spiral, and you feel the darkness inside, go, go to the words of Scripture. Go to Ruth and let her point you to Jesus and there find a thrill of hope. Because, and this, this, I, there's a lot more packed in here than uh, they may have even noticed how loaded verse 19 is. Did you see that? So the two of them, went on until they came to Bethlehem. My point is simply, that is truer than they knew. That's truer than they knew. On one level, that verse simply says, Ruth and Naomi made it to Bethlehem. They made it through whatever they had to get through on that journey, but eventually they got to Bethlehem. But those of us in 2023 who can look back over the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, those of us who can look back over the salvation history of God, we look at that verse and we know it says something even more. They made it all the way to Bethlehem, didn't they? Oh, how they made it all the way to Bethlehem because Salmon fathered Boaz and Boaz married Ruth and Ruth had Obed and Obed had Jesse and Jesse had David and David had Solomon and Solomon had Rehoboam and from there you have all these kings that get us all the way to a scared teenage girl whose heart was full of faith and a carpenter named Joseph and they made it all the way to a brave little boy born in a manger born in Bethlehem yeah they sure did their story went on until they came to Bethlehem and there the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, God with us, was born in a manger. And who was written into that story? Ruth. A model of commitment, loyalty, of the wideness of God's mercy. And though there was darkness all around her story, and darkness inside Naomi, no doubt, there was a thrill of hope that still thrills when we consider how their story leads all the way to that manger in Bethlehem. And that's what the story of Ruth has to say from the family tree of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here today who feels like they're going through darkness. Maybe they, maybe they couldn't even feel like they couldn't even get out of bed today and they're watching this on a, on a video screen and I can't see them or know where they are, but you know right where they are right now. You can touch their heart. Maybe they're here in this room right now. And though they're wearing smiles and, and, and look very happy and put together, uh, their family is going through a real dark time. Uh, God, I pray you'd fill them up with your encouragement. Give them this morning, give them right now a thrill of hope. Hope. God, grant to them hope. That there was a little baby born in Bethlehem. And your light still shines in the darkness. 
God, grant to us that we would follow Ruth's example of commitment, loyalty, that we would thank you for the wideness in your mercy and we would throw our arms of wide, our arms of hospitality open wide for those who need love. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.